There are few things that make people successful. Taking a step forward to change their lives is one successful trait, but it takes some time to get there. How do you move forward to greet the success that awaits you? Welcome to Next Steps Forward with host Chris Meek. Each week, Chris brings on another guest who has successfully taken the next steps forward. Now, here is Chris Meek. Hello, I'm Chris Meek. Welcome to this week's edition of Next Steps Forward. As always, it's great to have you with us again. Our guest today is Beverly Gooden. Beverly is the author of Surviving, Why We Stay, and How We Leave Abusive Relationships, and the creator of the viral social media movement, hashtag Why I Stayed. She earned a master's degree in social justice from Loyola University Chicago, where she wrote her thesis on institutional responses to single women experiencing intimate partner violence. Her work has appeared in the New York Times, the Washington Post, and Time Magazine. She's been interviewed on NPR's On Point and All Things Considered, ABC's Good Morning America, and NBC's The Today Show. Bev Gooden, welcome to Next Steps Forward. Thank you for having me, Chris. Thanks for your time today. So Bev, let's start with some recent news. Yeah. It seems like much of the country was riveted to every little detail of the defamation involving a famous actor and his former wife who alleged she was subjected to domestic abuse. He ultimately won that case. When there's a successful lawsuit against the media outlet, we often hear that will have a chilling effect on First Amendment rights. How do you think the verdict in this defamation case affected domestic abuse survivors and people in abusive relationships? Did it have that chilling effect? Um, it, it did for me, at least. Um, it was The timing was so strange in that it was last week and my book was released this week. And so I immediately started to think, you know, how does this impact me? You know, how am I going, you know, to to be sued? You know, things like that. I mean, you have to think about stuff like that when you uh, publish and when you apparently even speak out about your abuse. So and so just at that base level, I think it's chilling, you know, to exist in a space where you're unsure whether or not you can even speak about abuse because maybe you don't feel like you have enough evidence or you don't have the right evidence or the people who can vouch for the abuse may not be deemed trustworthy by whoever you know hears it that's frightening I mean what do you what do you do with that I I always talk about how part of my healing journey was to be open to being seen you know, by the communities that I choose, whether it's, you know, friends or family or um, people that I follow on social media, being open to being seen and being open to discussing my views. Now, I mean, imagine a world where you can't even do that. You know, how does your healing journey even begin if you can't do that, if you can't even talk talk about it? So I think it has a chilling impact. Um, I've heard a lot of people say, different things like, well, this is a a wealthy person. And so it's different. It's different when you're not a wealthy person. What's the difference? You know, wealthy people can talk, can't talk about it. That makes it worse for us, actually. Like we don't even have money to shield us in any way. Um, It's just, it's just sad. I mean, it's just sad whether or not you believe uh, her allegations or whether or not you believe what, um, you know, her ex-husband had to say, I always stand by the fact that belief doesn't require proof. 
I, I believe that, I stand on that. You don't have to believe someone to help them. If someone's saying I'm experiencing domestic violence or I have experienced domestic violence, you don't have to believe that to offer a hand, right? You don't have to believe that to you know, provide someone with resources or lead them to the agencies that can help you. That does not require you to believe their story. You just have to be willing to help. So be willing to help because, you know, I think about this all the time, whether we believe um, Amber Heard or whether we believe, you know, and I do, whether we believe anyone else's story, what we know for certain is that the, the, the statistics are true. So there will be another victim of domestic violence in one minute, every minute there is a victim of domestic violence. And so that doesn't require us to believe it, right? It just is, it's in the data. And so uh, it, it's chilling, but I also don't think it's insurmountable. We'll figure it out. You know, advocates and activists who work in this area, we're not going to let survivors exist in a world where they can't speak. It's absurd. And obviously this isn't the first case of alleged domestic abuse involving a famous person. Mm-hmm. On September 8th, 2014, you created hashtag why I stayed, in which you tweeted out several reasons why you stayed in abusive marriage. Mm. What prompted you to do that? So it was 2014, I think it was September, and a video had come out of a football player who had punched his fiance, his then fiance, in an elevator and dragged her out of the elevator. And so um, I was on Twitter that day, because back then I was on Twitter all day, and <laughs> that was just kind of my, my medium. And the video came out. I didn't watch it, but you can always tell what's going on without even seeing things, especially on Twitter. And so at first, Chris, the conversation was about why would, she, why would he hit her? You know, that was the initial thing because it was violent. Like it was, it was on video, it was violent, it was shocking. And so I think that initial shock prompted that question. But then the news came out that she had married him after that. And so that's where I felt involved. So I hadn't, I wasn't talking about it a lot then, but I had been in an abusive marriage that started before the marriage. So I married the person who had been physically violent towards me. And so when I saw all those comments coming in, like, why would she stay with him? Or things like, I would never stay with anyone, you know, how that comes in too. I started to feel so much shame I started to feel, you know, so much guilt because I had also been someone, not necessarily just having experienced abuse, but someone who stayed, you know, with the person that abused them. And so I felt just um, compelled to tweet my reasons for staying. And I didn't think anyone was going to see them except the people who were mutual followers of mine, which wasn't a lot, who I was talking directly to in the beginning. Um, and so I didn't think it was going to be a thing, but I just wanted it to be out there that there are reasons for staying. Here were some of mine. And then I went to lunch because I was at work. <laughs> I was tweeting at work. Um, my boss knows now. Well, it's a different <laughs> boss, but I didn't get fired or anything. But I was tweeting at work and I went to lunch and then I got back from lunch only to find that the hashtag why state was trending in the U.S. And it was a different time, Chris, like it was a different time. It was 2014. This was pre a lot of the um, social movements that speak directly to gender violence or sexual violence or physical abuse, things like that. 
And so I, you don't expect something like that to trend. And I was confused at first. I was just like, well, who else is tweeting about, <laughs> you know, I didn't think it was, I didn't think it was the one that I had created. And so, but when I clicked on the hashtag, it was really evident that survivors and victims, however you identify, were telling their story of abuse. We had people sharing stories of loved ones or parents or brothers or sisters that had experienced abuse. We had um, people just tweeting in support, you know, and I think somewhere along some somewhere along the line of 200,000 people tweeted in that first day using the hashtag, which had never happened before in regards to domestic violence. So I was in the first day. Two days later, you're on national television being interviewed by Robin Roberts on Good Morning America. Yeah. What were you thinking at this point? And what was the reaction to that interview? I was terrified. <laughs> I was, <laughs> it was all internal though, because I must say that Robin Roberts was the nicest person I've ever met. Like still just very warm and welcoming, but it was a, it was a big platform. Nothing like tweeting in your, your cubicle from work about domestic violence. It's just like a completely different thing. But I, I, had, I had several things on my side that gave me confidence. I knew what I was saying was true. And I knew it was bigger than me, you know? And I think those two things made it um, easier for me to get up there and, and talk about why victims would stay, why I stayed, and what that means in the larger context of domestic violence. So it was, it was scary, but I was determined to make it about the collective and not about myself. So at this point, did people think you were an expert on domestic abuse? And were you thinking, <laughs> oh my God, what have I got myself into? Uh, I don't know that anybody's ever mistaken me for an expert. <laughs> I'm just kidding. <laughs> no, but, uh, it was, um, you know, the thing about it is I've, I, I, I try to always position myself as a survivor advocate first. You know, it's been eight years that I've been talking about my story publicly. Um, and so I don't think that there's, that, that anyone has ever mistaken me for an expert. In fact, I think people automatically were confused, you know, about how I was on this platform because I wasn't someone who was a very vocal activist. I wasn't someone who was like a CEO or president of a domestic violence organization. I was a person who tweeted about domestic violence and no one knew me, you know? And so it, it immediately felt like um, a little bit of pressure, you know, to, to say the right thing. But I also brushed that aside. I'm not here to say the right thing. I'm here to say the true thing, you know? And so it became easier for me to just kind of get out there and talk about what I intended to talk about, which was domestic violence the issue, domestic violence, the circumstances, the types of domestic violence, because there's more than just one, and what we can all do. Um, what a lot of people didn't know at that time, though, is that I had written my master's thesis on domestic violence um, because I experienced it, but that was the last thing that I did, and so I just kind of wanted to submit that into the universe of research and then like go quietly into the next phase of my career. And it's just kind of like serendipitous that um, I wasn't allowed to do that. <laughs> Something else happened. Why I Stayed was listed as one of the top social change hashtags of 2014 by Forbes and named one of the top 10 hashtags that started a conversation by Time Magazine. In March, 2015, 
why I stayed was recognized as one of eight hashtags that changed the world. How is the greater dialogue about domestic violence different today as a result of that hashtag? Um, I think that the thing is why I stayed the hashtag wasn't the first time that, that, that people had tried to have that conversation. You know, I think initially of this Ted talk that, uh, was actually pretty viral, um, called, or it was either called why I stayed or why I would have stayed. It was something similar, right? And it was by uh, Leslie Morgensteiner. And it was all about why she stayed in, in an abusive relationship. The thing is, I think that we have moments in time. We have moments in time where there is a 24 hour or 48 hour period where we pay attention to the issue of domestic violence. And then as soon as that window is up, as soon as it closes, we've moved on to something else, anything else. It feels like, like, all right, we did, we talked about domestic violence for the year. Like, let's move on to something else. And so I think up until the hashtag why stay, that was kind of the pattern. You know, something would happen, it would get everyone's attention. We talk about it for the allotted one day, and then we would move on to something else. Why I stayed, um, by no, like by no usherance of my own, but solely by, you know, all the victims and survivors and people joining in and it spreading, cancel that out. So we weren't talking about it for one day. We were talking about it for a week. And then it was like, okay, is it, is it over now? It wasn't, it went on for another week, you know, it just kept going on and on and on. And I think that speaks to a few things, but most importantly, it speaks to the power of people sharing their stories on um, platforms where their stories can spread. And I think that brings us back to the very beginning of, a of our conversation about the impacts of a verdict that says anything that you say is defamation. Because one thing that I, that I remember from that verdict that day is that Miss um, Heard never said his name in her op-ed, you know, she never mentioned him. She just literally positioned herself as a survivor of domestic violence. And that was it. So, you know, it, it's scary to know that like with the hashtag why I stayed, it changed so much in the area of being able to speak openly about it and that creating a sustained dialogue and the fear now that that might not be able to happen again because people might be too afraid to share why they stayed. As you began to look deeper into the question, you were surprised by some of the answers you found. It's mm -hmm. not always simple and easy to leave, and they're giving me practical reasons to stay. Yeah. What are some of the reasons that people stay in abusive relationships? Um, can you still hear me? Yep, I've okay. got you. Um, there are a lot of reasons. I would say the, the main reasons are uh, financial in nature or more specifically access to resources. So a lot of people are um, experiencing two different types of abuse within their abuse. It, it rarely comes in just one form. So for instance, they could be experiencing physical abuse and financial abuse. Well, financial abuse limits your access to resources um, intentionally. Like your partner is limiting your access to money and financial tools using financial abuse. And so how do you get away? You know, if every time you swipe your debit card, someone knows, or someone's watching. If every time you use money or, or if you don't have a car, you know, or if you don't have the appropriate amount of money for an application fee or security deposit, security deposits are wild. Sometimes they can be like one month rent, 
like that's that's a lot of money and you don't have that. And so a lot of people stay because of access to resources. A lot of people stay um, because they want to. And that's a painful thing to hear. Um, if you haven't really experienced domestic violence, I know a lot of people wince sometimes when I say that, but I, Chris, I wouldn't have married my ex-husband if I didn't want to. Like I wanted to be with him. I, I wanted to spend my life with him. I loved him. I didn't want to leave him. I wanted to believe him when he said he would stop. You know, I wanted to believe every time he said it was the last time. I wanted to believe that. I, and I, I feel like I had a right to believe that. And so that's why I stayed. And that's why a lot of people stay is love. You know, you you want that relationship. You believe that your love can fix it. Things like that. Um a lot of people say because of sexism and racism that they experience outside of the home and the home is their safest place, even if it's dangerous, you know, and so you're, you're opening yourself up to being alone, you know, once you leave your partner and that can be a really hard existence for people who are marginalized. Um, there are just a lot of reasons why people stay but I would say the main ones have to do with access to resources. And this isn't too personal and you don't have to answer if you don't want to. You talked about wanting to believe and wanting to stay. Yeah. What was the breaking point? So one day I woke up to, I guess I should preface preface that by saying, um, every time that my ex was physically violent, I, I could find a reason to make it my fault. By that, I mean, you know, if it had to do with something I wore or someone I interacted with, well, I could point to myself and say, well, I'll do that differently next time. You know, I, I provoked that. That was something that I always told myself back then. Um, I could do that better, you know, in the future. Well, one day I woke up to him pushing me out of the bed. Um, and that was a signal to me that I, it wasn't my fault, you know, cause what are you doing when you're sleeping? nothing. You're not doing anything. Like there's nothing, you know, I snore. You point. well, yeah, <laughs> I, do, I don't. So, <laughs> you know, what are you doing? And so, um, that was, a, that was one of the first times I, it, the wheels began to turn, right? Like I began to, to realize that this is not something I was provoking. I didn't cause it. I didn't bring it on myself. You know, I wasn't doing anything. And so, I, I don't know if that was the breaking point. I would say that was my moment of realization, you know, that this has less to do with me and more to do with a decision that he's making. A moment ago, you mentioned physical and financial abuse as, as two main reasons why you stay. Yeah. Do those reasons mean we need to be less judgmental of people who stay or does it mean we need to create a better support system to help them leave? I think both. I mean, I'm an advocate for being less judgmental in general. Like, I think we should always be less judgmental, say, for, you know, several things that just are, you know, there's no tolerance for. But um, when it comes to victims of, of, of abuse, surviving abuse, we should definitely be less judgmental. But I think there are so many things we can do to put better structures in place to aid victims that could look like, you know, renewing the Violence Against Women's Act on time, you know, <laughs> every time and fully funding it, which 
you know, seems to be really hard to do. But beyond that, because that's very gender specific, that could be creating more inclusive programs that include, you know, different types of people, those who are non-binary or genderqueer. We could do that. We could make sure that our local domestic violence agencies are well-funded and that they still exist. You know, COVID didn't just damage everyone. It damaged certain organizations very specifically. Um, a lot of people lost funding. A lot of shelters closed. You know, so what's in their place? You know, it's not like the issue of domestic violence closed too. You know, it's still here. Like there are yeah, still worse. people that need help. Right. And so we have to make sure, I think there are so many things we can do. Yes, be less judgmental, but advocate. You don't have to have the title of domestic violence advocate to advocate. You can just simply advocate, you know? So like making sure if you want to, you know, donating your tax deductible donation to the local domestic violence agency, um, always carrying with you, I do this, always carry with me the number to the local hotlines and also like the national domestic violence hotline. So if ever I need to give it away or if a friend needs it or family member needs it, I have that. You know, we can take it upon ourselves to do both small things and big things to impact the lives of people People who are experiencing domestic violence, but but we should also be less judgmental because you don't know what's going on within. I read a tweet way back in 2014 where um, a woman tweeted that she stayed with her abuser because he had the health insurance that she needed. Um, it was like the good health, and you know, there's different tiers of health insurance, unfortunately, but it was like the great health insurance that provided her everything she needed easily for her chronic health condition. And so she wanted to leave her abuse partner, but then what? Then she would have to be able to afford some health insurance that would be, you know, comparable to what she had. And it just wasn't impossible. It was just impossible because his was employer sponsored, you know? So, I mean, there's so many reasons that we just will never know about, but there are things we can do. You look at questions from two angles. You said you're most annoyed when someone asks, why did she stay instead of why did he hit her? But you're also quite supportive of the idea of people asking questions when they don't know about domestic abuse. Take us through your feelings about those questions, please. Yeah, I'm not one of those people who I, I actually, I really respect people who don't want to answer questions because I firmly believe in autonomy. You don't have to answer anything you don't want to. You can make a statement and walk away and that's just fine, right? I love questions. I like to answer questions. I don't think victims and survivors should be responsible for it, but I think it's okay to find someone who wants to answer your question. So questions like, why would someone stay with an abuser? I think that is a question that can be answered, has been answered, and a lot of us are willing to answer it. I think that's okay. Like, it's, I think it's okay to be confused, particularly if you haven't experienced domestic violence. Before I did, I was someone who would say things like, well, I don't understand. Like, I would never let someone hit me, and I would say I would fight them back. Now, I can't fight. I'm I'm short and like fighting is not my thing. I'm not a fighter, but I would say things like that. It, I, it, you know, I just did because that was the culture that I was raised in that we're all raised in, like to always question like, well, what's wrong with you? Why would you do that? But then I lived it and I was like, oh, I, all these reasons. I have all these reasons 
you know, why I would stay with someone. And so I think it's a, I think it's an interesting question. And I think it's a question that evolves as, as we evolve as people. And I think that's okay. It's okay to ask those questions. It's not okay to target people. It's not okay to be internet troll. It's not okay to blame people for abuse. None of that is okay. That's not okay. But questions are okay because how else will we know? You know, how else will we learn? I don't know, you know, I get, we have to answer those questions. And so I think that's when leaning on people who, you know, publicly talk about it, me for instance, or leaning on agencies, you know, like the Na National Domestic Violence Hotline or um, National Network to End Domestic Violence. There's a group called Futures Without Violence. Um, there's Love is, Love is Not Abuse, I think, that talks about, uh, Love is Respect that talks about teen dating violence. So all these organizations, specific advocates love to answer your questions. And I think that's okay. Like keep asking questions, especially if you are genuinely curious and want to know the dynamics of abuse. I think that's important. In the same year as your famous hashtag in 2014, you also launched the LMA Foundation named after one of your grandmothers. Yeah. Why'd you choose a name after her? And what was the foundation's mission? Yeah, so my grandma, um, she was just a really incredible person. You know, she was resolute, you know, she was spiritual, but she had a particular um, passion for children and women. And I got everything from her, right? Like I got my self-confidence from her. I got, I think, you know, my, my passion for others from her, you know, from her life. I got my no nonsense from her. Like I want what I want and <laughs> I'm going to work for it. You know, I'm going to get that. But um, I named it after her because I, for me, there was no one else to name it after. She modeled everything that I hope to be. And so what I do in the um, LMA Foundation is, right now it solely exists for the Bolt Bag Project. So the Bolt Bag Project is something I started after I escaped abuse. And I wanted to provide um, escape bags. That's one of the first things that uh, people will tell you when you're leaving abuse is to create an escape bag. Um, and I create them for anyone who needs them. And then I send them out to them um, anonymously. I don't need your real name or your real address, just a name and a addre an address. You know, um, The anonymity piece was important to me because I think when survivors go to look for resources, a lot of information is required of them. You have to give your name, address, maybe social security number if it's federally funded. I don't want any of that. I just want you to tell me where you need me to send your escape bag and it will get to you. So that's what the LMA Foundation does. Toyota featured you in a commercial about the Bolt Bag Project. Tell us about that experience and the response that the LMA Foundation had in its wake. Yeah, so um, Toyota reached out and they wanted to feature the Bolt Bag Project just really to talk about um, the issue of domestic violence. You know, it was an effort on their part to, you know, um, speak out about the fact that this is not an issue that's going away and that we all need to, to lend a hand to help getting people out of it. And so that was their intention. Um, a lot of people wanted to donate to the foundation after that. I don't need that. You know, I don't, I'm, I'm a one person operation, you know, and it's also self-funded and I don't accept donations. I just want people to tell others because I feel like the more that, the more people know that something like this exists, maybe the transition out of abuse will be easier, you know? Um, and I put a pause on it 
because of COVID, you know, for, I, I just, you know, when it first, COVID first happened, you don't know what you could touch or send or, you know, you remember that time we just didn't know what oh, we didn't, didn't know. know yep. Yeah. So I just put a pause on it because I didn't want to maybe have COVID and it was in the bag. You know, I didn't know how that worked and then it get to someone else, but um, I'm hoping to start it up again in uh, October, which is domestic violence awareness month. Um, but yeah, Toledo was a really good partner in that. And I love when brands focus on domestic violence. I think it's a brave thing to do because it's, you know, the sexier social issues are easier to focus on because they're sexy. There's nothing sexy about domestic violence. There's nothing, um, you can't make it fun. You know, you can't make it, you can't make it that. You have to like really consider the severity of it and the weight of the issue. So I always think it's it's interesting interesting is courageous when people just blatantly um, talk about domestic violence in a way that supports victims. Well, definitely please keep us posted when you start launching the, the bolt bags again, so we can get out there on social media. So please keep us aware of that. I will. And I know you say it's self-funded, you don't accept donations, but do you need people to get involved with the LMA Foundation? And if so, what's the most effective way to support the cause? Um, I think sharing, you know, spreading the word is the most effective way, but also making them yourself. Like I always tell people, you know, the Bolt Back project is a project I started, but it's by no means a project that only I can do. You can create an escape bag, literally, here's what's in it. So you have <laughs> hand sanitizer, you have mini shampoos and conditioner, you have a small comb, you have a toothbrush and toothpaste. Some of them have, um, uh, wipes, baby wipes in them. If you have children, they all have little tiny first aid kits that cost $2 at, you know, your local big box retailer, you know, and that is what is in the bags. If you want, you can put like a $10 grocery gift card in there. Like you can do whatever you want. And then you can create 20 of them and take them to your local domestic violence agency. And now you have participated in the bulk bag project. It's, it's just that simple. And so I hope that, you know, you know how some organizations are there, I created this, this is mine, you can only do it through me. I hope that you replicate it. I hope that it becomes something that everyone does so that, you know, I'm not in Tulsa, Oklahoma, you know, I'm not in Santa Fe, New Mexico, but if you are, you can do this there. And so that's that's the best thing that, that we can all do for the Bolt Bear Project, for real. So Bev, I'm having such a great, intriguing conversation with you. I hope it's okay we skip through the break and just keep on yes. going. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I know how difficult this is. And so I just appreciate you being so open and honest. Thank you. So I think the same people who wonder why doesn't she just leave might find it hard to understand how feelings can be complicated mm -hmm. as in, you know, how could someone possibly love a person who abuses them? Yeah. But you'd say it's not that simple. Mm -hmm. Would you explain those complicated feelings that you experienced? Yeah. I think about how you know, if my ex-husband had been violent from the moment I met him, there would have been no relationship, right? You know, so there was a period of time where he was amazing. You know, he was a long period of time, you know, months, six, seven, eight months. And he was sweet and there was kindness and there was gentleness and there was beauty and love and, you know, the families combining and pets involved, you know, it's real once pets gets involved, you know what I'm saying? So, you know, you have all that beauty building up to the then abuse, right? And so my point is that every victim of domestic violence remembers that time explicitly. You know, we know what it feels like to be loved 
perfectly by this person who is now hurting us. Those are where the complicated feelings come from, you know, because you want to believe that this abusive person is the anomaly. You want to believe that because you know that there is another person, you know, and so you have to square that, right? You have to figure out, well, who is, who is the person? Like, who's the actual person? Is it this person or is it this person? And that's complicated. And that's hard because for me, it wasn't always abusive. In fact, I would say it was 75% peaceful, but the abuse when it happened was, was bad. Like it was bad and it was painful and it hurt, but I had this other 75% of our time to lean back on to say, okay, this could be good. You know, like this, this can be beautiful. How do we get back to that? So then you're kind of like in this race to get back to what once was. That's why it's complicated. And I don't think that that's hard to understand. I think anyone who has ever loved or been loved can, can, can understand that. Wanting to believe the person you love, having a right to exist in your home without violence, because it's your home too. You live there. You, should, you shouldn't have to leave. You should be able to live peacefully in your home. So, you know, just, you know, get up, leave, just go. It's, it's easy. Why not? How is it easy when there's human hearts involved? How is it easy when you don't have money? Maybe you don't even have family or you have a disability or you're an immigrant and you don't have access to all the other resources that everyone else does. You know, none of it is easy. And I think that, you know, if we take a moment and, and stop and think about it, we'll find that it's much easier to relate to someone who is experiencing domestic violence than we think. And as you're talking, I don't know if you know the answer to this, but you mentioned how the first six or eight months were great and there was love mm -hmm. and joy and pets. I agree with you. Once pets are in, it's real. It's real. <laughs> Have there been any studies done that explain the rationale how somebody can, for lack of a better analogy, Jekyll and Hyde and, and just switch like that? There has been. I mean, there's been a lot of research done. There's this one book that is super popular called Why Does He Do That? And I apologize because it's, it's gendered, but um, the, the author Lundy Bancroft has since come out and say that it said that it is it, it broadly applies so the he can be, you know, applied across um, gender identities. The he was intentional at that time, which was, you know, decades ago, because um, the issue of violence against women was the most prevalent. And it still is like women experience it at much higher rates. That's just a fact. Um, but now we're he's moved to a more inclusive exploration of that, which I definitely appreciate that. But um, you know, there's there's a lot of reasons. I think when it comes to um, someone's own trauma, you know, my my ex-husband's story is not my story to tell, but there was trauma there that had nothing to do with me. It was long before me. And so, you know, what may have been abnormal to me in relationships may have been normal to him. And so this was just how marriages worked, you know? Um, a lot of people, uh, there is no just switch on and off. You know, this is just who they always were. And everything leading up to it was intentional. They intentionally love bombed you. They were intentionally very romantic in the beginning to just kind of reel you in to then activate, you know, the control and the, the abuse. It was always there. You know, they're just really good at hiding it. That's one thing. And then um, one of the other issues has to do with socioeconomic status. Um, it's not that poor people are abusers. That's just simply not the case because we know <laughs> rich people abuse too or wealthy people abuse too. But it, it has been found that um, 
people who are underemployed or unemployed because of whatever circumstance has, has caused that, whether it be, you know, economic or racism or what, you know, redlining, whatever has caused them to be in this situation, they take that out on their partners. And so that is abuse. So the reasons to me seem endless, you know, and that's part of the reason why I always say, I don't know that we can end domestic violence. I really respect and admire organizations that name themselves, you know, in domestic violence, because I think that's a tall order. But I think we can, one, prevent it. But if nothing else, we can set up very solid, established systems that aid victims, you know, because we may not be able to stop or end abuse, but we can always figure out a way to help someone out that we may not understand it or why it happens or, you know, where it comes from when you've been romantic, but we know what we can do on the other end. We can make life and the transition easier. That period immediately after leaving an abusive relationship is often the most dangerous period. Yeah. What should someone do to protect themselves from physical violence or even death after leaving an abuser? Yes, the most important thing you can do is safety plan. Um, and it's one of the reasons why I get so angry when people say, just get up and leave. You are asking someone to put their life at risk, not just risk, high risk, you know, extremely high risk. In fact, the two weeks following the time uh, women leave abusive relationships, they are subject to, I think, 70 times more likely to experience violence. So there is like no get up at like you, we shouldn't say that. We shouldn't say that. But the most important thing we can do is safety plan. Um, any domestic violence website that you you can go to will have, um, well, I shouldn't say any, I try not to be. <laughs> most domestic violence websites that you go to will have um, ideas for a safety plan or maybe even templates for a safety plan. That includes letting a trusted person know um, where you are, letting them know what's happening, first of all. And if you have like a date and time that you want to leave, that you know is like a better time to leave, bring other people into that plan. So the person you trust, your family, your friends, maybe your job um, or you know your church, if you're religious, things like that. Having people in place strategically to help you get out if you need um, access to resources like a bus pass or grocery cards, things like that. Domestic violence shelters have that. If you need the map to a domestic violence shelter and you can't look it up on your phone because your abuser goes through your phone, you can have that. You can have someone that has that. So safety planning is um, the most important way to try to prevent violence. There's no foolproof way to do that. Like no, no, I wouldn't trust anyone that says we can 100% prevent violence once you leave the relationship. Like we just can't, um, we, we can't do that, but we can know where you're going and what you're doing and when you're planning on doing it so we can all step in to try to help you get out successfully. But safety planning is the, is the answer to that. And in terms of safety planning, I learned something that I hadn't thought of when logging on to the National Domestic Violence Hotline website. Before someone can log on, a warning comes up that reads in part, and I quote, internet usage can be monitored and is impossible to erase completely. If you're concerned your internet usage might be monitored, call us. The site also notes that again, quote, Technology and the internet are powerful tools for anyone experiencing domestic violence. Yeah. They can be essential resources to access help and information and valuable platforms to connect with friends, family members, advocates, and service providers. Mm -hmm. It continues, unfortunately, they can also be used by abusive partners to begin, continue, yeah. or escalate abuse, making it all the more important to ensure your safety online. How common is it in an abusive relationship for the abuser to track internet activity, social media, email, or cell activity, it's part of the pattern of the controlling behavior. More importantly, how can someone protect themselves when that's happening? 
Yeah, technological abuse has become uh, one of the most common forms of abuse because it's so easy. You know, tech makes abuse easy. Tech makes stalking easy. Tech, And by no means am I blaming tech. I'm not saying tech is the reason. The person who's doing it is the reason. But like technological tools can just be used like that, you know, to monitor activity, um, to stalk someone's social media, to see what time they're posting. And if you can figure that out consistently, you can figure out their schedule, right? Like there's so many things you can do. A lot of people who are abusive will gain access to your past password without you knowing, or they'll put a tracker on your phone, there'll be some spyware, you know, things like that, or they'll replicate your email account, so that they are getting your emails coming to their phone. I mean, there's so many, there's so many technological ways to um, be an abusive partner, you know, there are ways that we can try to stop it, you know, um, 2FA, two-factor identification, authentic authentication is a way to try to prevent that. Constantly resetting your password, um, which is something uh, that is annoying, you know, if you don't if you don't want to have to do that. But it is definitely a way that you can try to keep yourself safe. Um, uh, changing your passwords on your accounts at a regular frequency. So let's say every 14 days or every 30 days, you change all of your social accounts password, you change your email address password, um, keeping track of, you know, how many um, tools you use. So if you have a phone and you have a tablet and you have a computer or, you know, a watch, uh, you know, something that has a, you know, one of those fancy watches that have technology on them, um, keeping track of those and not forgetting which ones you have, you know, you can't forget that you have a tablet because someone could be monitoring that and making sure that those are locked. Apple, just, I don't know if you heard about this, but I think it was a, maybe yesterday or the day before they announced that the next um, iOS will have a feature called safety check. I might be saying, I might have that wrong, but I think it's called safety check where with just one click, you can log out of everything. You know, you can just like click it wow. and log. Yes, it's amazing. And they said that they had been working with domestic violence agencies, which I was so glad to read that. Um, working with domestic violence agencies to create this function. And so with just one click, you know how you would usually have to go into each, you know, um, site and revoke access. You just revoke it with this one click and uh, it's a brilliant, every system should have it. Every um, operating system should have it. So, um, but to that end, every operating system should have it, right? Like it shouldn't just be up to us as victims and survivors to just constantly be vigilant about our technology. Ideally, they should have our back. You know, this 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 Apple thing was shocking to me and I'm really excited about it, but I also feel bad that I'm shocked and really excited about it. This should be standard. You know, you shouldn't have to just constantly be protecting yourself. We should be protecting each other. You know, that's that's what we should be doing. Yeah, but to the to counter that, and I'm yeah. I'm for tech, but you know, how many big tech firms have we heard about that are collecting your data, they're selling your data, they're tracking what you do. And well, so true. I totally agree that like it's as a big Apple fan myself, uh, you know, thrilled yeah. that they're doing that, but I can understand some of the, the reluctancy. Yeah, it's unfortunate. You've expressed concern that as a young black woman, you might not be believed when you tell your story. First, why don't you feel that you would be believed? And second, mm. how does that affect your well-being? You know, there's so, many, there's so many ways I want to answer that question. I think, you know, the, 
the way that I know I might not be believed is history, you know? And so um, the story that is closest to me is the one of the, what they have now called the Cleveland Strangler. So I'm originally from Cleveland, Ohio. Um, that's where I was, I was born and raised. And in Cleveland, there's a man named Anthony Soule. And um, he lived in a black neighborhood and you know, black women would go to his house and disappear. Like they would just go to, his, to visit him at his house and never be seen from again. And for years, their families were saying, look at that house, check that house. My, my, my mom, my sister, my daughter, we can't find her, you know, go find her. And, and no one did, like law enforcement didn't, no one investigated. No one was like, oh, they just ran off, they're fine. You know, no one believed that these women were in danger. And then one time, one time, a woman went to his house and escaped. And she went to the police and she said, I was sexually assaulted at this house. Please go investigate. Please go look. Something smells bad there. They found the remains of 11 people, all Black women, inside and outside of his house that had been there for years. All those families that had been saying, my daughter, sister, mom is there were right and no one believed them and no one went to look for them. And so I actually have a chapter in my book that's titled, No One Is Going To Save You because I know, I knew that if I went missing, I wouldn't be the next person that TikTok looked for. This is not gonna happen because it doesn't, it doesn't. I mean, I don't, I can't even think of three cases that of domestic violence that involved black women that were in viral. I mean, I can't even think of three. Um, it just doesn't happen. And so, you know, history tells me that simply because I'm black, I am at risk. And that's, a, it's a scary thing for your mental health. I think in a weird way, I'm used to it. You know, like I've been black, <laughs> I've been a black woman for a really long time, all my life. And, you know, my parents raised me you know, not to be fearful of what could happen, but to know that this is unfortunately the world that I live in and to, and to be vigilant about that. So history tells me that, that my experience will be different than someone who didn't look like me. And, and, it, and it's hard on the mental health, but um, yeah, there's no but. It's just hard on the mental health. <laughs> you worked with another foundation to produce videos on that topic. Uh, I'm sorry, mm -hmm. the, um, income abuse. Are those videos still available? And if so, where can people in the audience find them? I think they're still available. They're probably on YouTube. The organization was the Allstate Foundation um, and they had or have a Purple Purse initiative and it's all about financial abuse. They have been one of the organizations early on that was really focused on financial abuse. Um, out of all the different types of abuse, they really zeroed in on that sort of abuse. And so the videos may be on their website or they may be on YouTube. I'm not sure if they still exist, but the whole purpose of the videos was to make that um, type of abuse more popular because a lot of people don't know about it because a lot of people will think that it's just a normal part of marriage to have to account to your partner for every dollar you spend. You know, it's just kind of what people think is normal. Um, so those, I think those videos are on YouTube, but I'm, I'm not sure. But for sure, the organization is the Allstate Foundation. Great. Thank you. Yeah. So you work with numbers in your day job as you evaluate financial compensation and public policy. A 1995 study estimated that the economic cost of intimate partner violence was $5.8 billion. 
That's $11 billion in today's terms. Why do you think so many employers shy away from this issue? Have we lost you? Rachel, can we pause here? Oh, there we go. We got you. you. Okay. Thanks. Sorry. I was like, I think I lost. You're back now. Rachel, can we do a retake? I still got you, Bev. You still got me. Okay. Okay. All right. Thank you. So Bev, let me check my network. Sure. It's stable. Thank you. Okay. I switched networks. So we should be good. Okay. All right. Thank you. So I'm going to go back to the question about your numbers in the day job. Okay. You work with numbers in your day job as you evaluate financial compensation and public policy. A 1995 study estimated that the economic cost of intimate partner violence was $5.8 billion. That's $11 billion in today's terms. Why do you think so many employers shy away from this issue? I think that employers walk a fine line, you know, between what is appropriate and what could put them at risk legally, you know, I, and I don't know what risks those could be, but just know, knowing employers and having a past working in HR, I know that they're constantly thinking about um, what could put them at risk. And so I don't know that employers think uh, aiding, you know, employees from domestic violence will put them at risk. I do, I have noticed though recently, a lot of employers are starting to put initiatives in place that are within their control that wouldn't put them at any risk. One of them being extended time off. Like, and you would think like, okay, like that's, you know, yeah, there should be, but it's new. It's a new thing that employers are doing. Um, giving people who experience domestic violence a few extra days off or, um, I know a a couple of employers have actually started an employee resource group that is specifically for domestic violence. And it can be anyone, whether you're experiencing it or whether you're just curious about it, can join the employee resource group. And then the employees in the resource group help each other find resources. That's one thing that they're doing. But I think employers just don't know how to help, you know? And then I think also we just kind of have that like, overarching, this is a private issue, this is a family issue, this is, you know, an issue between partners thing that just kind of hangs over all of society. Um, that's just still there. But I think employers can do a, do a lot. I, 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 I shy away kind of from speaking about what employers can do uh, without really knowing the company very well. I think it's, I think things can be very specific to different types of companies, like financial companies or tech company, you know, things like that. Um, but I think the extended time off thing is is beautiful. It's kind of like the COVID time off where, you know, you got, I think it was five days toward the, the end. I don't remember, but there were extra days off if you had COVID. Um, there should be extra days off if you have to escape abuse. Like it's really hard, you know? So um, I think they shy away because they don't know how to help. But I, I think that there are strategies that we could all help come up with that could make it so that you know, we can't prevent it, but we can make the transition easier for our employees because this is employee wellness, right? Like this is not, I mean, this is not a far cry from things that programs that we can implement on a regular basis for our, our companies. We can just slide those in and it will be helpful too. You said that you re- reinvented yourself during and after the process of leaving an abusive relationship. Yeah. What did that involve? How long did it take? And how are you different now than you were before? Oh my gosh, I feel... The person I was before I experienced abuse 
was similar in ways, but so different. Like I was, I felt like it was like, I didn't have the knowledge of good and evil before, you know, life was just so different. I didn't know that, that someone you loved could do something like that. Like I thought that, I thought so many different things. And so my life since the day I left my ex, I feel like has been like on a journey of recovering different parts of my old self. I'll never get her back. She's gone. You know, I just know too much now. Um, but there are parts of her that I, that I try to get back. Like I, the, the super um, curious part of her, the part of her that's not afraid of not being in control. You know, I have that now. That's something, that's a trauma response that, that I've just started to, to, to work through is that I have a deep fear of flying. Now I do it all the time. Like you, I'm going to fly. Right. But like, it's, I, I go into terror and panic mode every time I get in a plane. And recently I realized it's because an airplane is the one place I know I can't escape if I need to, or if I want to. And that's not natural. I haven't always been afraid of flying. This is new. It's a new thing ever since I left my ex-husband. And so I feel like, you know, in a car, maybe I could swerve. You know, if I'm in a boat, maybe I could swim to land. You know, I could do things to try and save myself, but I can't do that in the air. And so that's a trauma response that I have. Like I, any situation I'm in that I can't escape, I fear. And so now I'm trying to recover that person that was not fearful of not being in control, you know? And so my reinvention has been near constant. It's still happening. I'm still finding new things and, you know, trying to think of who I was before and recover her. I go on walks now. Um, I eat donuts as many as I want when I want to without worrying about what my partner thinks about my weight, you know, Uh, ice cream, you know, I do that too. And I do simple things like I'll make new friends and not have to think about whether or not my partner will like this person or if I'll be able to talk to them or if they'll be jealous. And so, my reinvention has been part recovering the things that I like I like to do before, but also like recognizing I'm a person now with this specific trauma. How do I work within that trauma to live like a healthy and hopeful and happy life? If I need to take more road trips than flying, then I'm gonna have to be in the car and that's gonna be okay, you know? Um, so that's what my reinvention has looked like. I feel um, like my reinvention is, is, is long-term just like I feel that healing is long-term. I'm not someone who thinks, you know, you do this to get healed and then you're healed and you are a healed person who has been through healing and you've accomplished it. And I don't think that that's real. I don't think that's an accurate um, way that human hearts work. I don't think we work like that. I think that 15 years from now, you know, someone who experienced something a long time ago is gonna, it's gonna come back and there's gonna be a nightmare. Does that mean you haven't healed? Of course not. It means that healing is forever. Healing is a journey. I don't put pressure on myself to constantly reinvent. I don't put pressure on myself to to heal through my healing. It's a process. I'm always going to be healing. And I like that. I like the opportunity to constantly heal. You may have been fearful before, but you're fearless now. I am fearless now. Thank you. Beverly Gooden, thanks so much for being with us today. I really appreciate your time. Oh, I loved it. Thank you for having me, Chris. And thank you for talking about it. Of course. And you've got me hooked. I'm going to get involved. Thank you. (laughs) Thank you. And thank you for tuning into this week's installment of Next Steps Forward. I'm Chris Meek. We'll see you same time, same place next Tuesday. Until then, stay safe and keep taking your next steps forward. 
Thanks for tuning in to Next Steps Forward. Be sure to join Chris Meek for another great show next Tuesday at 10 a.m. Pacific Time and 1 p.m. Eastern Time on the Voice America Empowerment Channel. This week, make things happen in your life.